This is not Pablo Escobar. You have killed the wrong man. But the soldiers directed the two women to stand aside, and from the roof over the garage, they lowered a body strapped to a stretcher, a fat man in bare feet with blue jeans rolled up at the cuff and a blue pullover shirt, whose round, bearded face was swollen and bloody. He had a full black beard and a bizarre square little mustache with the ends shaved off, like Hitler's. It was hard to tell at first that it was him. Hermilda gasped and stood over the body silently. Mixed with the pain and anger, she felt a sense of relief and also of dread. She felt relief because now at least the nightmare was over for her son. Dread because she believed his death would unleash still more violence. She wished nothing more now than for it to be finished, especially for her family. Let all the pain and bloodshed die with Pablo. As she left the place, she pulled her mouth tight to betray no emotion and stopped only long enough to tell a reporter with a microphone, at least now he's at rest. The Rise of El Doctor, 1948 to 1989 There was no more exciting place to be in South America in April of 1948 than in Bogota, Colombia. Change was in the air, a static charge awaiting direction. No one knew exactly what it would be, only that it was at hand. It was a moment in the life of a nation, perhaps even a continent, when all of history seemed a prelude. Bogota was a city of more than a million that spilled down the side of green mountains into a wide savanna. It was bordered by steep peaks to the north and east and opened up flat and empty to the south and west. Arriving by air, one would see nothing below for hours but mountains, row upon row of emerald peaks, the highest of them capped white. Light hit the flanks of the undulating ranges at different angles, creating shifting shades of chartreuse, sage, and ivy, all of them cut with red-brown tributaries that gradually merged and widened as they coursed downhill to river valleys so deep in shadow they were almost blue. Then abruptly, from these virgin ranges emerged a fully modern metropolis, a great blight of concrete covering most of a wide plain. Most of Bogota was just two or three stories high, with a preponderance of red brick. From the center north, it had wide landscaped avenues with museums, classic cathedrals, and graceful old mansions to rival the most elegant urban neighborhoods in the world. But to the south and west were the beginnings of shanty towns where refugees from the ongoing violence in the jungles and mountains sought refuge, employment, and hope, and instead found only deadening poverty. In the north part of the city, far from this squalor, a great meeting was about to convene, the Ninth Inter-American Conference. Foreign ministers from the countries of the hemisphere were there to sign the charter for the Organization of American States, a new coalition sponsored by the United States that was designed to give more voice and prominence to the nations of Central and South America. The city had been spruced up for the event. Street cleanings and trash removals, fresh coats of paint on public buildings, new signage on roadways, and along the avenues colorful flags and plantings. Even the shoeshine men on street corners wore new uniforms. The officials who attended meetings and parties in this surprisingly urbane capital 
hoped that the new organization would bring order and respectability to the struggling republics of the region. But the event had also attracted critics, leftist agitators, among them a young Cuban student leader named Fidel Castro. To them, the fledgling Organization of American States was a sop, a sellout, an alliance with the gringo imperialists of the North. To the idealists who had gathered from all over the region, the post-war world was still up for grabs, a contest between capitalism and communism, and young rebels like the 21-year-old Castro anticipated a decade of revolution. They would topple the region's calcified feudal aristocracies and establish peace, social justice, and an authentic Pan-American political bloc. They were hip, angry, and smart, and they believed with the certainty of youth that they owned the future. They came to Bogota to denounce the new organization and had planned a hemispheric conference of their own to coordinate citywide protests. They looked for guidance from one man in particular, an enormously popular 49-year-old Colombian politician named Jorge Alicia Gaitan. I am not a man, I am a people, was Gaitan's slogan. He was of mixed blood, a man with the education and manner of the country's white elite, but with a squat frame, dark skin, broad face, and coarse black hair of Colombia's lower Indian castes. His appearance marked him as an outsider, a man of the masses. He could never fully belong to the small, select group of the wealthy and fair-skinned who owned most of the nation's land and natural resources, and who for generations had dominated its government. These families ran the mines, owned the oil, and grew the fruits, coffee, and vegetables that made up the bulk of Colombia's export economy. With the help of technology and capital, offered by powerful U.S. corporate investors. They had grown rich, selling the nation's great natural bounty to America and Europe, and they'd used those riches to import to Bogota a sophistication that rivaled the great capitals of the world. Gaitan's skin color connected him with the excluded, the others, the masses of Colombian people who were considered inferior, who were locked out of the riches of this export economy, and its privileged islands of urban prosperity. But that connection had given Gaitan power. No matter how educated and powerful he became, he was irrevocably tied to those others, those whose only options were work in the mines or in the fields at subsistence wages, who had no chance for education and opportunity for a better life. They constituted a vast electoral majority. In 1948, times were bad. In the cities, it meant inflation and high unemployment, while in the mountain and jungle villages that made up most of Colombia, it meant no work, hunger, and starvation. Protests by angry campesinos, encouraged and led by Marxist agitators, had grown increasingly violent. The country's conservative party leadership and its sponsors, wealthy landowners and miners, responded with draconian methods. There were massacres and summary executions. Many foresaw this cycle of protest and repression leading to another bloody civil war. The Marxists saw it as the inevitable revolt. But most Colombians were neither Marxists nor oligarchs. They just wanted peace. They wanted change, not war. To them, 
This was Gaitan's promise. It had made him wildly popular. In a speech two months earlier before a crowd of 100,000 at the Plaza de Bolivar in Bogota, Gaitan had addressed his remarks directly to President Mariano Ospina. We ask that the persecution by the authorities stop. We ask a small but great thing, that our political struggles be governed by the Constitution. Señor President, stop the violence. We want human life to be defended. That is the least a people can ask. Our flag is in mourning. This silent multitude, this mute cry from our hearts, asks only that you treat us as you would have us treat you. At great rallies like these, Gaitan seemed poised to lead Colombia to a lawful, just, peaceful future. When the OAS conference convened in Bogota in 1948, Gaitan was not only the people's favorite, he was head of the Liberal Party, one of the country's two major political organizations. His election as president in 1950 was regarded as a virtual certainty. Yet the Conservative Party government, headed by President Ospina, left Gaitan off the bipartisan delegation appointed to represent Colombia at the Great Conference. The president's snub had only enhanced Gaitan's stature among his supporters and among the more radical young leftists gathering to protest, who might otherwise have dismissed him as a bourgeois liberal with a vision too timid for their ambitions. Castro had made an appointment to meet with him. Gaitan busied himself with defending an army officer accused of murder, and on April 8th, the day the conference convened, he won an acquittal. Late the next morning, some journalists and friends stopped by his office to offer congratulations. They chatted happily, arguing about where to go for lunch and who would pay. Shortly before one o'clock, Gaitan walked down to the street with a small group. He had two hours before the scheduled meeting with Castro. Leaving the building, the happy group walked past a fat, dirty, unshaven man who let them pass and then ran to overtake them. The man, Juan Roja, stopped and without a word leveled a handgun. Gaitan briskly turned and started back toward the safety of his office building. Roja began shooting. Gaitan fell with wounds to his head, lungs, and liver and died within the hour as doctors tried desperately to save him. Gaitan's murder is where the modern history of Colombia starts. There would be many theories about Roa, that he had been recruited by the CIA or by Gaitan's conservative enemies, or even by communist extremists who feared their revolution would be postponed by Gaitan's ascension. In Colombia, murder rarely has a shortage of plausible motives. An independent investigation by officers of Scotland Yard determined that Roja, a frustrated mystic with grandiose delusions, had nursed a grudge against Gaitan and had acted alone. Beaten to death on the spot, his motives died with him. Whatever his purpose, the rounds he fired unleashed chaos. All hope for a peaceful future in Colombia ended. All those brooding forces of change exploded into La Bogotazo, a spasm of rioting so intense it left large parts of the capital city ablaze before spreading to other cities. 
Many police, devotees of the slain leader, joined the angry mobs in the streets, as did student revolutionaries like Castro. They donned red armbands and tried to direct the crowds, sensing with excitement that their moment had arrived, but quickly realized the thing was beyond control. Mobs grew larger and larger as protest evolved into random destruction, drunkenness, and looting. President Ospina called in the army, which in some places fired into the crowds. Everyone's vision of the future died with Gaitan. The official effort to showcase a new era of stability and cooperation was badly tarnished, as visiting foreign delegations signed the charter and fled. The leftists' hopes of igniting South America's new communist era went up in flames. Castro took shelter in the Cuban embassy as the army began hunting down and arresting leftist agitators who were blamed for the uprising. But even a CIA history of the event would conclude that the leftists were as much victims as everyone else. For Castro, an agency historian wrote, the episode was profoundly disillusioning. He wrote, it may have influenced his adoption in Cuba in the 1950s of a guerrilla strategy rather than one of revolution through urban disorders. La Bogotaza was eventually quieted in Bogota and the other large cities, but it lived on throughout untamed Colombia for years, a nightmarish period of bloodletting so empty of meaning it is called simply La Violencia, the violence. An estimated 200,000 people were killed. Most of the dead were campesinos, incited to violence by appeals to religious fervor, land rights, and a bewildering assortment of local issues. While Castro carried off his revolution in Cuba and the rest of the world squared off in the Cold War, Colombia remained locked in this tribal dance with death. Private and public armies terrorized rural areas. The government fought paramilitaries and guerrillas, industrialists fought unionists, Conservative Catholics fought heretical liberals, and banditos took advantage of the free-for-all to plunder. Gaitan's death had unleashed demons that had less to do with the emerging modern world than Colombia's deeply troubled past. Colombia is a land that breeds outlaws. It has always been ungovernable, a nation of wild, unsullied beauty steeped in mystery. From the white peaks of the three cordilleras that form its western spine to the triple canopy equatorial jungle at sea level, it affords many good places to hide. There are corners of Columbia's...